Hello, I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Now it's very late in the day and there's a limit to how much we can do. If we want to have a snowball's chance of keeping our lives in any way kind of livable, we're going to have to drastically change how we live our lives. As climate historian Alice Bell told us on this podcast a few weeks ago, our planet's climate is changing. That is now indisputable. The time has passed for diplomatic niceties. If governments, especially G20 governments, do not stand up and lead this effort, we are headed for terrible human suffering. This Sunday, the COP26 Climate Summit begins in Glasgow. This annual conference will welcome delegates from almost every country on Earth who will negotiate, cooperate, argue and hopefully agree on how to tackle the climate crisis. The pressure has never been greater for the conference to deliver results. But are all world leaders finally willing to step up to the mark and do what's needed to prevent catastrophic temperature rises? Kevin O'Sullivan is the Irish Times Environment and Science Editor. Kevin, what's different about this year's COP26 conference? What makes it more important than previous climate summits? This is the most important one since the landmark Paris Agreement was reached in Paris in 2015. And it's really important for two reasons. One is the Paris Agreement is not fully launched and activated, uh, which is very worrying. There's been too much voluntary commitment and too little delivery. Alongside that, the climate science is showing that the clock is ticking and we're going to run out of time within the next few decades. So that's added a great urgency to the the whole process. And as you've just referenced there, the mission of all these countries who are coming together for COP26 in Glasgow is to check in on the progress of implementing or not implementing the terms of the Paris Agreement, which aims to reduce the harm caused by climate change and limit warming to 1.5 degrees of heating. But the window for achieving these commitments is closing very fast. What is the scale of the challenge world leaders are facing next week? And how hard is it going to be to reach an agreement? Well, just to explain the scale of the task first, to contain temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, which is a key Paris Agreement target, that is hugely demanding. And the, there's other evidence that has emerged since Paris confirming this. And that essentially says... You have to have global emissions, total global emissions by 2030. And that's in less than a decade. That is necessary so that you can achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The science is saying that those two elements are absolutely critical to avoid the worst inevitable impacts of of climate change and to avoid triggering tipping points where all sorts of environmental consequences cascade with unknown effects. The world won't be able to do anything to stop them and we don't know where we will reach as a consequence of that. There are obvious tipping points in terms of melting ice sheets, in terms of ocean temperature, in terms of different parts of the world where they will become unlivable. So that's the agenda that's facing them. The key mechanism for countries to come to Glasgow is to declare their, what are known as NDCs, nationally declared contributions to the global effort. And the problem is that people have promised to do certain things in terms of carbon mitigation, in other words, reducing carbon emissions, and they're not delivering on it. 
Some have set incredibly ambitious targets and Ireland is up there with the countries with really good, impressive uh, commitments. Yet the reality is we're not delivering the emissions reductions. And in too many instances, emissions are rising. It's very clear what the science is indicating now. It is suggesting, based on all the promises that countries have made across the planet, that we are facing a 2.7 degree rise this century. Now, you might say, oh, that's just a slightly warmer, sunny day on the beach in, in Wicklow or whatever. But that, that has huge implications because that will probably mean that the temperature rise in the Arctic would be 10 degrees. And then we will have incredible uh, sea level rise across, across the planet and a massive release of methane. Like 2.7 degrees is very close to having an unlivable planet. And that is the stark reality. And that's not, you know, sometime in hundreds and hundreds of years. That's, you know, within the lifetime of someone born today. Sive O'Neill is a lecturer in climate policy and politics at Dublin City University, and she's one of the leading experts on climate action in Ireland. Sive, you're part of the delegation going to Glasgow next week for COP26, and you've also been to previous COP summits in Morocco, Germany and Spain. Can you describe the scene of what these conferences are like? Who is there? What do you see? What do you hear? Well, the the COP is like nothing else. It's a vast conference with delegates, sometimes enormous delegation teams. The United States might have hundreds of delegates just attached to their own delegation. And then you've got delegations from every country in the world. It's often very tough on developing country participants trying to get the resources together to send delegations and particularly civil society and NGO representation. So it's very much a, a Northern European and, and US dominated conference, unfortunately, not terribly diverse, but very large. You can't tell the story of this COP in Glasgow without going back to what happened in Paris in 2015 to COP21 and the signing of the Paris Climate Accord. Can you remind us, what was the outcome of that conference? Uh, What was agreed? How was it agreed? And how easy was it to reach that agreement or difficult? The Paris Agreement was really a triumph of diplomacy, of climate diplomacy. Prior to the Paris Agreement, you had a series of failed attempts to arrive at a global treaty that would create binding obligations on parties. So in 1992, there was a framework convention signed and all of the uh, countries that signed up to that agreed to stabilise emissions and prevent dangerous climate change, but there was no mechanism to implement it. So the idea was that there needed to be some sort of global treaty uh, that would operationalise and put into specifics the obligations on countries uh, so that there would be a collective sharing out of the mitigation effort. It failed to happen in Copenhagen. So Paris happened four years later and um, it was very much a, a triumph of the diplomacy to try and get everybody back at the table and to agree. But it wasn't easy to get there and a lot of compromises were made along the way. Staying with Paris, I mean, did it go far enough? What did it actually achieve? Well, I think the, the best way to describe the Paris Agreement is that it's a spectacular success And at the same time, it's a spectacular failure. And what I mean by that is it's a success in the sense that we have almost all countries in the world, 197 parties, all committed to collectively keeping global temperatures below two degrees. So every party, every country that signed up to the agreement is obliged to submit 
proposals representing their highest possible ambition. In other words, they're supposed to do their level best and they're also supposed to respect the principle, if you like, of a fair share of common and differentiated responsibilities. So every five years, there's supposed to be a review, what's called a stock take. And then each time, uh, every five years, countries are supposed to increase their ambition. It's what's called the ratchet mechanism, so that over time, effort is steadily increased. Now, the architecture of the agreement is a marvel in legal terms in itself. It's so carefully crafted to, to balance the question of participation, and obligations so that everybody feels they're getting something out of it, which of course is where the Kyoto Protocol fell down because the uh, targets in the Kyoto Protocol only applied to some countries and there was a lot of free riders and people defected and simply pulled out. So the the Paris Agreement um, is a success. There's no question about that, but it's also a failure. The agreement hasn't delivered the emissions reductions that we need to actually achieve that 1.5 or 2 degree target. And so far, when you look at the national contributions of the biggest global emitters, we're still on track for three or four degrees of warming. So we're clearly not on track. So when you look at the agreement, it's easy to see why. Because the agreement was maximising participation and compromise, it has no top-down targets. So there's no numbers in the agreement, if you look for it, um, specifying who has to do what. All the effort is essentially determined by each country. So every country decides for themselves what they want to do and what they want to contribute to this global effort. And it's an exercise of wishful thinking that all the numbers would add up to the 1.5 degree budget. There's no mention in the Paris Agreement of even the words fossil fuels. And we all know that it's fossil fuels that are driving the greenhouse gas emissions in the first place. There's a reluctance among some parties to sign up to any language every year that recognises the roles of fossil fuels. And that means that we never get language that stresses the importance of keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And there's a few other problems with it as well. It's very hard to compare a country's contribution because there's no common time frame or metric. So, for example, China can say that it's reducing carbon intensity of its economy. But that's very different from saying that it's going to reduce emissions. And the European Union has a target of reducing emissions by 55% over 1990 levels. But other countries have chosen different base years. And Brazil, for example, have updated their uh, contribution recently, but they cleverly changed the base year to give themselves even more room to manoeuvre and even more emissions. So there is a problem there in terms of squaring up all this effort so it adds up to what needs to be done. So let's talk a little bit about the world since Paris. I mean, what has happened since that agreement was made and how much have we lived up to the agreement that was reached? Well, there's a couple of different NGOs that track the performance of countries over time. One is the Climate Action Tracker and the other is uh, Climate Change Performance Index, which tracks the performance of major emitters and uh, uh, looks at their progress over time. And it's quite clear that many countries uh, are falling into the trap of making promises and not doing anything to implement them or not implementing them fast enough. And we can see that the uh, world is on track for three degrees or more of warming unless um, countries start to act on their promises and reduce the emissions. And it is fair to say that climate change is much more on the average person's mind now than it was in 2015. What has changed in that time to make people more aware of what's going on? 
Well, I think a huge event in a negative way was when Donald Trump was elected president of the United States and declared that he was going to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. I will not sacrifice tens of millions of jobs, thousands and thousands of companies because of the Paris Accord. And I think that that unsettled a lot of people. It made people concerned that you can't rely on the international order to be delivering consistently what's required. But then, of course, in 2018, we got the special report on 1.5 degrees. Their starkest warning yet about the danger of climate change. And that was very alarming in its message, that even 1.5 degrees of warming is dangerous and that the world had you know, at the time, 12 years to get emissions back on track. And when I say back on track, they were recommending the scientists that we seek a reduction of about 50% in global greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. The Pacific Northwest is absolutely boiling. It is sweltering under a heat dome. A terrifying overnight escape as more than a thousand people evacuated the island of Evia, Greece. It's the morning after the flood in the small village of Schuld on the Ahr. I think we've all been surprised and shocked by the extent of the wildfires, the heat dome in northwest United States, uh, the, the flooding in Europe, and, and of course the uh, extended droughts and heat waves that countries in the Middle East and Northern Africa are likely to experience over the coming years. So we're not delivering on our promises, and there's a, a kind of renewed sense of urgency in recent times. And it's, it's uh, I think, best exemplified by the language of the Secretary General of the United Nations, who said that when he was launching the IPCC report, that um, it's code red for humanity. Uh, there's no doubt about the science anymore. We know what we have to do, but we simply haven't got around to doing it fast enough. We are not only stealing the future from our children and grandchildren, we are also stealing the present from the most affected people in the most affected areas. Those who are already suffering the consequences of the early stages of the climate and ecological crisis and those who have contributed to this crisis the least. And of course, we saw the emergence of Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future global movement of young people who are marching on the streets for their very future. So the science is starting to connect with public opinion. And I think that's a crucial um, change in, in the public discourse. But of course, that discourse isn't enough. We need to act because we're running out of time. So Saif, what are the specific goals that policymakers and participants will be looking at during COP26? We're going to be uh, looking to see what the countries say about the latest IPCC report. And believe it or not, there'll be extensive debates about whether to note it, to welcome it, what the kind of language that's used to uh, respond to the report will be regarded as highly significant. There are some countries who are always trying to separate the science from the policy and they'll do their level best to object to any language that recognises the IPCC's latest uh, research. The other thing this COP has to do is has to consider the latest and updated NDCs that each country has contributed. And that's going to inform uh, what's called a global stock take that's due to start next year. And that stock take is to kind of add up all the different contributions and try to make sense of it and figure out 
what needs to happen next. The final area that's very important, I think, will be to demonstrate that the climate finance obligations and commitments are being met. So developed countries are supposed to commit to delivering $100 billion a year towards developing countries. But in fact, that looks like yet again, that target won't be achieved. And it's just worth bearing in mind that the United States alone has spent, I think, 2.6 trillion on its COVID response. So 100 billion is not very much, it's pennies. Um, And yet we're still failing to deliver on that most basic commitment, which, of course, undermines trust. So climate finance and loss and damage are the main issues that developing countries will be bringing to the COP. But it's not clear whether they will get what they're looking for. Which countries are driving the push for reducing emissions at COP26, do you think? And who who are the nations responsible for holding it back? The champions of global climate justice are undoubtedly the small island developing states. So these would be tiny islands in the Caribbean and Pacific that are extremely vulnerable to sea level rises and have already started to experience environmental disasters that may threaten the uh, survival of their entire community. And as many of these uh, islands have very limited resources, they tend to pool together and hire the very best lawyers to represent them at the COPs. In terms of who the laggards are, unfortunately, it's the countries that are mostly involved in producing and exporting fossil fuels. The Arab group uh, representing many of the Arab states. So, But it's, it's Saudi Arabia predominantly. And you also have some kind of negative contributions over the last decade or so from Brazil in particular, which is in an interesting position because it is uh, growing in its emissions and its contribution, but its historical contribution is quite small. So as a kind of middle income country, countries like Brazil and South Africa and India play a key role because they can go either way. They can be Uh, pulling back from greater ambition because it might affect their development goals. But they can also be very articulate advocates for a more just approach to the distribution of mitigation obligations. Saif, are the COP summits the right way for the global community to be tackling the climate crisis? Or are there any alternatives to dealing with this? The Paris Agreement is really the only game in town. Um, But the reality is that the action that is required is action by nation states. So at an international level, the Paris Agreement and its related bodies and institutions are, are all we have. We don't have time to negotiate a new treaty. We just simply have to act on the ones that we do have already. Um, everything hinges on the domestic action by states, but increasingly you can see subnational activity. For example, there's a covenant of mayors and a network of cities around the world that are taking on net zero targets for themselves. And obviously the role of companies and multinationals is very important here as well. So once these companies uh, commit themselves to implementing net zero targets across their supply chains, that has a, a ripple effect throughout economies and throughout the political debate as well. Increasingly, we see that there's rising political awareness in many countries. We have a global climate strike taking place on the 6th of November, and that will be just one of a series of events over time as the public becomes more engaged and concerned. But the international order um, is, is all we have, really. We don't have a global government. We don't have a world ecological organisation. So we, we, we have to move forward with what we've got. And certainly that means in the Irish and the European case that we take action at a domestic and European level.
How confident are you, Saif, that enough will be done in Glasgow? What would success at COP26 look like? And if an agreement isn't reached, what would failure look like? (laughs) I'd love to say failure is not an option. We just can't afford failure. Um, Modest success would be firm obligations on parties to update their NDCs in line with the science. So not just to update them, but to update them in line with the science. Uh, Agreement on common timeframes will be very important um, for the Article 6 negotiations and obviously meeting our finance, uh, climate finance contribution obligations is also going to assist greatly. Um, there is a big effort going on by the UK and Italian presidency to um, insist, you know, to try to persuade uh, countries to to step up their climate finance contributions. And it doesn't look likely that it will succeed, but they it might just sh- fall just a little bit short. and That might be enough to win the trust of developing countries. It would be wonderful if there was an agreed sort of text calling for a coal phase out and an end to fossil fuel exploration. And even the International Energy Agency is telling us that that's what needs to happen. But it's probably unlikely that that will be agreed, unfortunately. We just have to make the best of it. We we can't wait for the international community to tell us what we know we need to do. We just have to get on with it, really. Coming up, how committed is Ireland really to cutting carbon emissions and playing its part in avoiding global climate catastrophe. Kevin, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we spoke to climate modellers who work in NUI Galway about what Ireland could be like in 2050 if we don't tackle climate change. And what we heard was pretty stark. Sometimes you do hear it suggested that Ireland could somehow benefit from warmer temperatures, but that completely misses the point of what we're facing. How seriously is the Irish government taking this problem that threatens us all and future generations even more? We heard earlier this week about the newly proposed carbon budgets which will apply to every sector of the economy and detailed plans for reducing emissions over the coming years. So that at least sounds like they are taking concrete steps. But do you have faith in the government's ability and commitment to live up to these plans? Well, firstly, I think it's fair to say the government is taking the climate crisis very seriously and like setting a target of 51% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050 is among the most ambitious among countries uh, throughout the world. So that, that's a fairly significant marker. But the problem has been poor delivery. So th- it's interesting that adopting a carbon budget mechanism, which isn't applied in every country, but uh, it is proven to work. It does impose discipline. It does say you must reduce uh, emissions across the whole economy by a certain amount every year. So so it's really good for focus and driving down emissions, which we need. Our, our trend is, improve, is not improving, I should say. Emissions are rising all the time. So the, the budget mechanism, even though it's politically fraught and very difficult and all sectors will be affected, is a really effective driver. Do I have faith in the government's ability to deliver? I think um, it set itself huge targets that are very hard to achieve. And um, so they're politically difficult to get across the line at a time that carbon taxes are increasing. So I think it's it's going to be a tough, tough time over the next two years. And at the same time, people are facing rising prices in energy and electricity, gas, etc. So it, it's, a, it's a turbulent mix. Uh, but I think 
if they can put in the right supports uh, and particularly for those that will be directly affected and particularly for farmers and people in the Midlands and people in fuel poverty, I think they have a good chance of succeeding. But there is a risk on top of all of that, and that is that the cuts are backloaded towards the end of the decade. So it has to put in the big infrastructure investment sooner to ensure that it gets the big cuts required later. So that remains to be seen if that will be kept on track. Kevin, thanks a million. That's all for today. My thanks to all the contributors who have joined us for this four-part series on the climate crisis. You can read more from Kevin O'Sullivan, who will be in Glasgow next week for the COP26 climate discussions on irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>